Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and then put your finger there and turn back to the left to Mark chapter 10. Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. Now, for the handful of you that may not know, poker is a a card game that originated in the 19th century. Today, there are variations of poker games, and um, they've become very popular. You can even watch on poker tournaments on ESPN. Now, now if you don't know, it's like this. You're dealt a uh, hand of cards, and you bet on those cards, and, and then the person with the best hand wins. During the game, you have a chance to make multiple bets, and when you make those multiple bets, you can either bet more or you can fold your cards. You're basically saying, I don't think I can win. I don't have a good hand. I'm going to fold these cards. Now, whenever you have a really good hand, oftentimes a player will look at his chips and look at everyone else's chips. And, and that player will decide that he is going to bet everything. He's going to bet the bank. He's going to bet the farm. He's all in. And when you're all in, you leave nothing behind. You're all in. There's no plan B. Either you win or you go home when you're all in. Now, this morning, we're concluding a series that we've called Steps. Steps that that each and every one of us need to take if we're going to live the life that God wants us to live. We looked at the step of repentance that that leads to salvation. We looked at the step of baptism, publicly professing our faith to Jesus Christ. We looked at the step of active church membership. God expects each and every Christ follower to be a part of a a local church. We looked at the step of service. God wants us to use our unique gifts and abilities to serve God and to serve His church and to serve others. We looked at the step of sharing our faith, how each and every one of us should should tell the world what Jesus Christ has done for us. But today, as we wrap up this series, I want us to see that unless we are all in, we've bet the bank, we've left nothing behind, we will never truly experience the life that God intends for us to live. One of the problems in the church today is many people believe that we can be a Christ follower without being all in. And the truth is, I've discovered that that many churches are like this cartoon that I saw a number of years ago. It had this church and out front was this billboard. And on the billboard, it said the like church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute services. We have only eight commandments you choose. We have an 800-year millennium, everything you wanted in a church, and less. We've taken a message that speaks of sacrifice, commitment, dying to self, giving our all, and we've somehow turned it into a selfish, self-centered It's about me message. We have produced a form of American Christianity that that is in line with the American dream, but it's out of line with biblical truth. 
It's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor who was imprisoned in Nazi Germany and was eventually put to death by Adolf Hitler. He wrote a book that I would encourage every one of you to buy and every one of you to read. The, the title of the book is The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, this is one of the things he says. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is preaching a forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Costly grace calls us to follow. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace... Because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what costs God much cannot be cheap for us. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus taught his disciples that if they were going to follow him, they must give up everything. In Luke chapter 5 verse 11 it says they left everything and they followed Jesus. Don't miss that. They left everything. They were all in. They held nothing back. You see, it's not enough to, to check a box in a church service. It's not enough to make a decision. Jesus wants us to be fully devoted followers, disciples. Now this morning, as, as we look at these two passages that, that teach us this truth that Jesus expects us to be all in, I want us to see an encounter that Jesus had and then a truth that Jesus taught. Now first of all, I want us to look at the encounter. And we see that in Mark chapter 10. Notice what it says. It's one of the most well-known encounters Found in the Word of God. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, notice several things. 
first, this man was earnestly seeking. The Bible tells us that he ran after Jesus. He fell on his knees before Jesus because he knew that Jesus had the answer to the most important question of life, the question of eternal life. Now, this man is known as the rich young ruler. He had everything. He had wealth. He had power. Yet there was something missing in his life. There was an emptiness deep within that all of his money, all of his wealth, all of the things that his money could buy, all of the power that was at his hands, all of those things could not fill that emptiness. So we came to Jesus. I am convinced that, that every single person has that exact same emptiness. I, I really do believe that. I believe every person will come to a point in their life when they realize that even though we may have fortunes, even though we may experience fame, even though we may have a number of friends and everything else that this world can offer, there is something missing inside. There is an emptiness. There is a void that nothing in this world can fill. And I believe that's why this man came to Jesus. I am also convinced that we all have questions about eternity. Each and every one of us. What happens next? Is there life after death? And if there is, how do I prepare? Now, now when we're younger, we may not ask those questions very often. It may be in the back of our mind, but here's what I know. The older we get, the more years that pass us by the more and more it seems that we are asking those questions. You see, this man knew that there was something more, and he wanted to be ready, so he came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, and he asked the right question, but the question was flawed. You see, the real question is not what I must do, to have eternal life. The real question is what does God need to do so that I can have eternal life? A lot of people make that exact same mistake. They think that there's something that we have to do to inherit eternal life. We have to live a good life. We have to give enough money. We have to be a good neighbor. We have to be a good person and and understand all of those things are good. And, and you should live a good life. You should use your money wisely. You should be a good neighbor. But you cannot purchase eternal life. Eternal life is not something you earn. Salvation is not something you earn. It's something you receive. It's a gift. So here was this young man who was a rich ruler who was earnestly seeking. But notice, he was greatly confused. Now Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. In that question, in that statement, Jesus is trying to reveal who he is and this young man's need. You see, Jesus is not just the one that we come to for answers Jesus is the answer. 
At some point in each and every one of our lives, we have to determine who Jesus is. Was he simply a good man? Was he an incredible philosopher? Was he a miracle worker? Or was he something else? You see, Jesus turns this question on the man. Why do you call me good? Do you know who I am? Because no one is good except God. Now that statement is important because of what Jesus said next. Jesus said, you know what the commandments say. And and then Jesus quoted the last six commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not deceive. Do not defraud. Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Jesus said, these are the commandments. And then this young man makes an amazing statement in verse 20. He says, Master, all these... I have done. All these I have kept since I was a child. Now, now listen. I don't think this man was trying to be smug. I don't think he was trying to be self-righteous. I don't think he was trying to lie or intentionally deceive. I think that he sincerely thought that he was in pretty good shape. He truly believed, based upon his life based upon his outward appearance, that he had observed the Ten Commandments and he was okay. To be honest with you, he was a lot like many of us. When we look at ourselves outwardly, when, when we take a superficial look at ourselves, some of us can, can feel pretty good about where we're at. Some of us can can sit in this room right now and say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank or a convenience store. I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. I try to be a a good neighbor. I help people when I see them and they're in need and I have the ability. You see, we feel like that we are in pretty good shape. But that's because we're taking a superficial outward look at our life. And that's just not enough. You see, Jesus wanted this young man to not just look on the outside. Jesus wanted this young man to look deep within at his heart. And that's what he wants each and every one of us to do. You see, Jesus wanted this young man to see us. It's not just a matter of following these rules. It's a matter of having a transformed heart. I'm afraid that many of us today do the exact same thing that this rich young ruler did. We we take an outward look. We compare ourselves to other people. And then we have this idea that we're good enough to go to heaven. I believe that many people are going to be lulled into a sufficiency... That leads them to hell because they are taking a superficial look at their goodness. You see, this rich young ruler was confused about his goodness. He was confused about keeping the law. And many people are still today. The law is a standard that we need to follow. 
The law is a guardrail that keeps us from falling. But more than that, hear me, more than that, the law wasn't intended as a standard. It wasn't intended as a guardrail. The law was intended as a revealer. The law was intended as a revealer of our need. I mean, when we look at ourselves and we hold up ourselves against the mirror of God's law, that shouldn't cause us to to look into the mirror and, and smile and go, look at me. Look how good I am. It should cause us to look in despair because we realize how far Far short we fall. And that's what Paul talked about in Romans 3. He said it is from the law that comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, it's the law that makes us to realize our sin. Paul went on to say we all sin. We all fall short. None of us, none of us can look at God's perfect law and then look at ourselves and say, look what I've done. Look how I've measured up. At least we shouldn't. But yet this is what this young man did. He was confused. Now what comes next is one of the most beautiful statements in the Word of God. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now that word look, it's not the Greek word that means to take a casual glance. It it means to gaze Within. The word literally means discern. Jesus looked at this man, looked at who he was, all the wrong that was in his heart, and yet he loved him. And of all the words for love in the Greek, the word used here is agape. He loved him with an unconditional love. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He didn't look at him and say, straighten up your life and and come back. He didn't say, go find a better mirror. Really see who you are and then come back. He didn't say any of that. He looked at him and he loved him. In Romans 5 verse 8, it tells us that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, he loved us. He didn't tell us to get everything in order. He didn't tell us to follow all these religious observances. He didn't tell us to straighten up all the bad. He said, I love you just like you are. Listen. No one can go to hell and say God didn't love them. Because God loves Each of us. So in love, Jesus looked at this young man, discerned his heart, and said, one thing you lack. Jesus was trying to expose his heart. Jesus was trying to help him see his idols, the things that were keeping him from putting God first. That word lack in the Greek is the same word in Romans 3.23 that's translated fall short. This one area is where you fall short. This one area is where you lack. And then Jesus went to the heart of the matter in this young man's life. He said, go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, 
You're going to have riches in heaven if you do that. And then follow me. You see, before you can come to Jesus and experience eternal life, the life that God wants you to have, you must rid yourself of whatever it is that you love more, you serve more, you worship more than Him. For this rich young ruler, it was his wealth, his standard of living, the things that that his position allowed him to have. Jesus said, you need to get rid of all of these things and follow me. Now, that's crazy. And there are some of you here this morning who are wrestling with that right now. Does this mean that if if I'm going to follow Jesus, I've got to sell everything I've got? Live in poverty, absolute faith, and follow him? Well, if he tells you to, you better. If that's the one thing that is keeping you from putting him on the throne of your life, if it's the one thing that's keeping you from following him unconditionally, then you need to get rid of that. Now, here's what I believe. Every single one of us have a one thing. One thing, something that can keep us from serving God completely. For some of us, it may be money. It may be a job. And we say, I'll never give this up. For others of us, it may be a relationship. I could never do without that. For others, it may be a habit that we cling to. But let me say to you, If there is one thing, if there is anything that you're not willing to give up for Jesus Christ, then that's your one thing. Do you remember what God told Abraham? I want you to go up on the mount and I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son Isaac, to me. Abraham's hope, his dreams, were wrapped up In that son. If he sacrificed his son. His dreams could be dashed. I mean after all. He was already an old man. It was a miracle that he had a son. And now God said I want you to give your son to me. And Abraham went to that mountain. And he was ready to do exactly what God told him to do. What is your one thing. Jesus said, if any man loves his wife, his father, his mother, his wife, his children, even his own life more than me, he cannot be my disciple. What's your one thing? Be honest. Because that's what Jesus is going to ask you to go get rid of and then come follow me. You say, but Rocky, my one thing isn't a bad thing. Well, it's a bad thing if you're worshiping it more than you're worshiping Jesus. You see, your one thing can be your wife. Your one thing can be your husband. Your one thing can be your kids. And God's not telling you to take a gun or a knife and and kill them, but God's saying, what are you going to do if they're no longer here? 
What happens if something tragic takes place in their life? Are you going to still follow me? Are you going to still worship me? Are you going to still serve me? What is your greatest devotion? Is it me? Or is it your spouse or your children or your job or, or your name? This one thing you still lack. That's not the end of the encounter. Because we see that the rich young ruler was unwilling to choose. The Bible says he went away sad. He, he, didn't, he didn't leave shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh well, he was sad. You see, it's not that this, this rich young man said, I, I know that I'll, have, I'll have better luck following this than I will following you. It wasn't that. He went away sad. He knew what he was giving up when he was unwilling to give up his wealth. Will you listen for just a moment? You think that that one thing that you're unwilling to give up, that one thing that is keeping you from being all in, you think that one thing is the secret to your happiness, your joy, your contentment in life. It's not. And that's the reason that you don't have lasting joy today. You're happy when everything's good in that relationship. You're happy when everything is okay with that job. You're happy when that habit is causing you Joy and fun and peace rather than misery and despair. But when it's not, you're miserable. Why? The reason is because you're never going to find what you want in that one thing. So what is your one thing? Now turn with me over to the book of Luke. And I want you to see a teaching. Luke chapter 9. We're going to have to hurry through this teaching Hit it to the point, and I think we can. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, it says this. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. At this point, in some of the translations, it says that now Jesus was speaking to the crowd. And so if that's the case, Jesus was in private, he was with his disciples, but now he's moved on and he is speaking to the crowd. In other words, what Jesus just said, everyone didn't hear. But what he's about to say, everyone hears. Then he said to them all, if anyone could come after me, he must deny himself. Take up this cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and, and yet lose or forfeit his very self? 
And after Jesus had this time of prayer, he began talking to his disciples and said, who do, who do the people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist brought back. Others say you're another prophet that was raised from the dead. And then Jesus said, but you, who, who do you say I am? Because in the end, that's what's important, isn't it? really doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your spouse says. It doesn't matter what your children say. It's what you say. Who is Jesus to you? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And at this point, Jesus said, you don't need to tell anybody that. And then Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man, the Christ, must suffer many things, and then he will be put to death. But on the third day, he will rise again. And then as he got before the crowd, he began to speak to them. And what he told them was absolutely crazy and saying. He said this, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. And understand, denying self and self-denial are two different things. Anyone can practice self-denial for a time. I can give up a certain type of food or I can give up food. I, I can give up TV. I, I can give up sex. I can give up, you name it. Anyone can practice self-denial for a period of time. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about self-denial. He's talking about denying yourself. When you deny yourself, you're setting self aside. When you deny yourself, you're taking self off the throne. When you deny yourself, you're surrendering your right to call the shots. Now, the truth is, that's tough. We aren't taught to deny ourselves. We're taught to deify ourselves. We're taught to put ourselves on the throne. We're taught to promote ourselves, to protect ourselves. But Jesus said, stop it. It's not about you, uh, listen to me carefully. I want you to hear this clearly. In many places today, the gospel that is being presented is a gospel of self-help. It's a gospel that's all about me and my happiness. And understand that is a false gospel. The gospel is not about you and your happiness and your success. The gospel is about denying yourself and doing whatever your master asks you to do. So Jesus said, if, if you want to deny yourself, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. But then he takes it a step further. He said, you must die to yourself. You must take up your cross. Now, hear me, he wasn't saying you need to wear a cross. He was saying you need to take up a cross. You need to carry your cross. A cross isn't some decoration you wear. A cross is an instrument of death that you carried to the place that you were nailed and you died. You see, a cross wasn't just a symbol of suffering. A cross was a symbol of of death. Many people today say, well, I've got a cross to bear. And we talk about this little problem in our life. Our cross is, is our physical problem. Our cross is a, is, a, 
is a cantankerous wife or a, or a deadbeat husband. Our cross is a, is a boss that, that is awful and we've all got our cross to bear. Understand, your cross isn't something that you suffer. Your cross is a symbol of death. Jesus was saying, I want you to take up your cross and I want you to die. When you take up your cross, you're having a funeral. It's you in the casket. And he expects you to close that casket, bury that casket. When you follow Jesus, you must not only have your own personal Gethsemane, you must also have your own personal Calvary. Jesus saying, I must take up my cross. Another place he says, daily. Follow me. Paul understood this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Verse that you should memorize. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet it's not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by faith, or the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, each of us have a choice. Jesus said we can either keep our life and eventually lose it. Or we can lose our life, we can lose our rights to our life and save it for all eternity. So Jesus said if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must die to yourself. And then he said you must devote yourself. Follow me. Jesus doesn't call us to make a decision, Jesus calls us to a life of devotion. That word follow is, is an interesting word. It comes from two Greek words. The prefix literally means like or same. And the second word literally means way or path. So what Jesus is saying is you need to walk in the same way. You need to take the same path that I take. To follow someone meant that you were surrendering to their authority. Like the song says... I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. David Livingston was the great missionary in Africa. One of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. He labored for many years in the deepest, darkest, most dangerous places of Africa. And because of his sacrifice, there are over 300 million Christians in Africa today. One time, David Livingston received a letter from a a certain missionary society, and the letter said this, if you found a good road to where you are, if so, we want to send other men to join you. David Livingston wrote back and said, if you have men that will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. That's the kind of followers Jesus desires. That's the kind of followers Jesus demands. To be honest with you, that's the kind of follower that Jesus deserves. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I all in? Have I taken all my chips... And put them in the middle of the table and said, Jesus, it's you and nothing else.
I'm all in. I'm leaving nothing behind. When we came to a time of invitation, when I was growing up, one of the songs that we sang very often was this song. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Are you all in? As we wrap up this series this morning, I want you to know that that's really the only way Jesus wants you. He wants you all in. He not only wants you to trust Him with your salvation, your eternal destiny, He wants you to trust Him with your life so much that if He says, go and sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, then come follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. You don't blink. You don't hesitate. You do it. He wants you to be all in to the point that if you're there fishing, you're at your place of work, your place of employment, and Jesus comes and says, I want you to leave your nets and your family behind, and I want you to follow me. You will do that with no hesitation. Are you all in? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. And as we pray this morning, I want you to just ask yourself that question. Am I all in? And if you're not, I want to encourage you this morning to surrender all, all to Jesus, surrender all to Him, freely give, and experience the life that only He can give you. If that's your prayer this morning, then I encourage you to pray this prayer to Him right now. And mean it with an obedient heart. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. Forgive me for playing games. Forgive me for holding back. Forgive me for trusting you for my salvation yet not trusting you with my life. Today, I'm all in. I'm leaving nothing behind. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to give, in obedience to your word, I will do it. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you died for me. Thank you, Jesus, 
for your indwelling spirit that lives in me. And thank you, Jesus, that you will never leave me. You will never forsake me as I seek to live the life you've called me to give, live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.